Welcome to the teaching ministry of Magnolia's First. To learn more, visit m1bc.org. You know, I've always found it interesting the different expressions of worship that arise from different denominations and worship traditions. I grew up in a, a stereotypical traditional Southern Baptist church in the 50s and 60s, and uh, the common thing in those days was for someone in the congregation, if they agreed with what the pastor said, they would say, Amen. And uh, that's just what I was used to growing up. And uh, in our tradition service, we still have a lot, a lot of long-time Baptists that continue that tradition, and I kind of like it. It's like saying, sick them to a dog for a preacher. And, uh, but there, uh, you know, I, I took a friend in high school one time to, to our church to worship, and uh, after the service, I said, well, what'd you think? And she said, well, it was, it was good, but I don't understand why the guy behind us kept grunting during the sermon. I said, what do you mean grunting? I said, well, the preacher would be preaching, and, and he'd just grunt out loud. <laughs> he wasn't grunting. He was saying amen, you know. But uh, there are other expressions of worship. Uh, but here's what you would have never seen in my church growing up. You would never see anybody raising their hands in worship. Uh, because, you know, that's what charismatics did, and we were scared to death of the charismatics back in those days. But thankfully, we got over ourselves. And so today in our services, you will on occasion see someone uh, raise one hand in praise to the Lord, or you might see someone raise both hands. And that, uh, for some, is an expression of surrender unto God as well as praise and worship. But sometimes you'll see some of us uh, worship with open hands in front of us like this. And that's a, a means of expressing to the Lord our hearts are open, our, our minds are ready to receive, and our hearts and wills are ready to obey. Open hands. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Today's message is living with open hands. And we're wrapping up our series, It's All About control. And this series, the, the concept for it was birthed in the heart of Pastor Jeff Williams, our missions pastor, and he began the series, you may remember, uh, two weeks ago. In fact, uh, pray for him because he's preaching right now in the Resonate service, the message that he preached in here, two in the hospital and three bone marrow transplants. And uh, he, he tells about how God taught him so much, and he's still learning as we all are about how to uh, live with the reality that God is in control. His big idea that first week was this, life is better when God is in control. But the reality is God is always in control, right? It's just whether or not we embrace that reality and, and we trust in that reality and relinquish our futile efforts to try to get control of our own lives and instead learn to be able to rest in the reality that our sovereign, loving God is in control. And when we do that, indeed, life is better when God is in control. And then last week we talked about anxiety versus trust and the, the tendency that we have to worry. And my big idea was this, trust in God extinguishes worry. Trust in God extinguishes worry. And if you missed that message, I hope that you'll go back and uh, pull it up and listen to it. 
Because the reality is we will either live our lives trying to get our hands around the circumstances and situations of our life, or we will learn to live with open hands, trusting in the control of our sovereign God and His will and His plan for us. And so today we're going to look at some principles and some passages that have to do with living with open hands. And we're going to start with the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10 where Jesus teaches us a little bit about what it means to be his follower, uh, being willing to give up our life and the control of our life to trust him, to love him, to follow him. So if you want to try to follow along, if you have your own copy of the Scripture, we welcome you to do so. We'll be looking at a number of different passages. They'll all be from the New Living Translation, and we'll provide these verses on the screen if you prefer to follow that way. So Matthew 10, I begin with the words of Jesus in verse 29, where he said, what is the price of two sparrows? One copper coin? But not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. I joked in the first services, for some of us, that's a lot easier for God. There's not as many uh, to count. But uh, the, the understanding there is that our God is concerned about every molecule of our being. There is nothing that escapes his notice in our lives. Verse 31, so don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. So with that understanding, later in that chapter, Matthew 10, Jesus makes some shocking statements about what it means to follow him. Follow along beginning with verse 37. He said, if you love your father or mother more than you love me, you're not worthy of being mine. Or if you love your son or daughter more than me, you are not worthy of being mine. Now, we hear those words and they make us uncomfortable. But what I think Jesus is trying to help us understand is, is that becoming a Christ follower is more than just believing the facts about the gospel. That Jesus came and was born of a virgin and lived a sinless life and died a sacrificial death. And we understand all those facts, but it's more than that to become a Christ follower. It means that we not only believe with our head, we believe with our heart that we give ourselves to him. And so he's saying, uh, if there is anything or anyone that we would put above him in our allegiance and our love, then we've not come to understand what it means to really trust him. He's not saying that those important family members in our lives are unimportant or secondary. He's saying that if we love him first, he will take better care of them than we could ever take care and that he, must, he doesn't play second fiddle to anyone. He says in verse 38, If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of being mine. And then he makes a, a powerful statement in verse 39. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. If you insist on trying to be in control and possessing your life, 
you'll lose that battle. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. So let me rephrase that for our big idea today. You have to lose your life to find it. A Christ follower loses his life to find real life. The, the, the New Testament speaks of the transformed life. I've heard it called the exchanged life, where we exchange our old life, where we seek to be the master of our own life for the life of Jesus being our master. This new life, this exchange life, is not a result of our efforts to reform ourselves by our own will and determination. It is a spiritual transformation brought about by the Holy Spirit. When at conversion we give our lives to Him, we become a new person with a new master. Our old life is gone. We begin a new life. And I've said this before. That's what our baptism pictures. It symbolizes and portrays. Not only is our immersion in the baptismal waters symbolic of the death and burial of Jesus, it is also a portrayal of the burial of our old life, of being separated from God by our sin, a life in which we sought to be our own master. That life is buried by faith, and when we are raised, it not only pictures the resurrection of Jesus, it pictures being raised to a new life, as a new person with a new master. And the Apostle Paul understood this powerfully, and he said it in a way that no one else has in Galatians 2.20. My old self has been crucified with Christ, Paul said. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body, by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Cindy's dad, who was a Baptist pastor for 60 years, used to call this throw in the 220 switch. That the, the old life of being in control, of being our own master, that life is dead. It's gone. We live a new life, and it's Christ living in us. And we live before him with open hands. So I, I want to try to unpack that, that picture a little bit by making some statements tied into scriptural truth. Here's some things I think it requires of us. Living with open hands requires that you believe that your life is completely in God's control. We'd all agree with that if we claim to be followers of Jesus, but more than just, yeah, okay, I know that. No, you really believe that. It becomes a core belief of your life that you're not in control, that God is completely in control. I tried to think of someone from the Bible that would uh, kind of have a testimony that would uh, exemplify that, and, and I thought of David in the Old Testament. I mean, you think of David. You think he realized God was in control that day that he killed a 10-foot-tall giant with a single rock? Do you think he believed that God was in control when King Saul was pursuing him with his army with the intent to kill him, and yet God protected him and spared his life? 
Do you think he believed God was in control when he sinned egregiously by committing adultery and even murder to cover it up, and yet God forgave him? David understood God was in control of his life. And that, that gifted poet and songwriter, who was also a king, wrote many of the psalms, including Psalm 139. Look at his words with me. David said, O Lord, you have examined my heart, and you know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up, you know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you're there. If I ride on the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me. Your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even in darkness I cannot hide from you. To you the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. For every one of us, God is at work in your life. If you're here today and you are not yet a Christ follower, or if you're watching online and you have not committed your heart and life to Jesus, even you, God is at work in your life. His work in the life of an unbeliever is to draw you to faith in Christ. He loves you and wants to see you redeemed and restored and forgiven and to have a future and a purpose. He's at work even in the lives of unbelievers. But for those of us who have trusted in Christ, who have committed our hearts and lives publicly to follow Him, He is at work. He has a plan for your life. And it's not just one of several. There's not like ten different default plans and He picks number eight for you. No. Just as your fingerprint or thumbprint is unique in the whole human race, so is God's plan for you. You know, I preach using an iPad. Some of you, uh, your laptops or iPads or whatever you might use is, is like this. But mine has a button, and, and I've, you know, set it up to where if I put my thumbprint there, it recognizes me, and it turns on. Well, you know what? If Apple can do that, how much more our God? Our Plans are more unique. And your fingerprint or thumbprint is unique in the whole human race, but the plan that God has for you is even more so. And it's not a plan that he kind of makes up as you go along. Well, he did this. Okay, I guess we better work this out in the, the next step. No, his plan for you came before you were even conceived in the womb of your mother. You see, living with open hands requires that you understand that God's plan for you was ordained before you were even born. Pick up one, uh, Psalm 139 again with verse 13. 
David said, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. Does that leave any doubt that the baby within the womb is a person? That God is looking within the seclusion of the womb of the expectant mother, forming that person And look what else it says, verse 16. You saw me before I was born. Now, this this is so personal and powerful. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. Do you see how important you are to God? How can we reject the plan of a God like that. Living with open hands requires that you recognize that God's plan for your life is for your good and for his glory. I want to take you to a familiar passage of the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 2, beginning with verse 8. You know these first two verses well. God saved you by his grace when you believed. Aren't you glad? And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Now, here's the the verse that zeroes in on our topic, verse 10. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things. Look, he planned for us all along. Years ago, I was preaching at my oldest son's church, Ecclesia, in downtown Houston. And uh, in those days, I don't know if they still do this, but in those days, they would have a painter, an artist, on the platform with the pastor that was preaching. And during the sermon, that artist would begin with a blank canvas, and she would, would take the brushes and the paints, and as the sermon unfolded, she would begin stroke by stroke uh, making a painting. And I happened to be teaching that day on biblical marriage, and it, it started with a completely blank canvas, and by the time my sermon was over, there was a beautiful work of art that depicted the things that I had brought from Scripture in, in that message. It was amazing. We, Cindy and I have that hanging in our, our bedroom in our home. Uh, But I I thought, you know, that young lady was a gifted artist, but our Heavenly Father is the master artist. And more than Rembrandt or Da Vinci or whatever, uh, Van Gogh, any artist that you might want to name, our Heavenly Father has a masterpiece that he is painting stroke by stroke, day by day, and every day of your life is a stroke in the hands of the master artist, and you are a living work of art in his hands. You are God's masterpiece. 
from the, the dark times and the, the deep colors to the, the brilliant colors of times of laughter and joy. Romans 8.28 says that all of those things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. And all of those things are, are strokes upon the canvas of your life to bless you and to glorify Him. And can I let you in on a secret? His purpose as he paints that masterpiece is not to make you and me comfortable. It's to make us Christ-like. It's to bring from our lives the image of Christ, to emerge from the canvas of our life, to reveal Christ to others through us. And that could not happen if all of the strokes of our life were, were joyous, celebration, happy, easy times. It takes the tough times of life for the masterpiece to emerge in its fullness. Or let me put it this way, living with open hands requires that you understand that God intends to use times of celebration and times of suffering to refine you. Times of celebration and times of suffering, all with the purpose to refine you. Let me take you to the book of James. If you're familiar with James, he was the half-brother of Jesus, same mother, different fathers. He was the pastor of the first century church in Jerusalem, and the people that he pastored were mostly Jewish Christians, and many of them were scattered from their homes in Jerusalem because of persecution of the early church. And he had a message that he sent to them in this letter that we call the book of James. Here's what he said, chapter 1, verse 2. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete. The Greek word there is teleos. It does not mean perfect as without fault. It means complete. And so the New Living Translators rendered it here, perfect and complete needing nothing, a fully formed, fully mature faith. Verse 5, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking, but when you ask him, be sure your faith is in God alone. In other words, don't try to trust in yourself and trust in God all at the same time. Do not waver, for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that's blown and tossed by the wind. And what's the result of people who are struggling to be in control instead of trusting God? Verse 7, such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Why? Verse 8, their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they're unstable in everything they do. In verse 2, James said, when you have troubles, consider it joy. Now, we don't usually connect those words in the same sentence, do we? We don't think of troubles bringing joy. How can you have joy if you're experiencing troubles? 
You can only do that if you understand that those troubles have a purpose, that God didn't uh, just miss what was going on in your life and, and he somehow uh, made a mistake. No. Every trouble, whether God sends it or allows it, has a purpose, and that purpose is to refine you, to mature you, to equip you to shine for him. But we really don't, in our human nature, want that, do we? We really don't want troubles. We want comfort. We want prosperity. We want ease. We want to be loved and admired and appreciated. We don't want to have what those early believers had, persecution. And yet, how we respond to the troubles that come into our lives really reveals who we're trusting in. For if we are trusting in God, if, if we don't become disillusioned or upset with God because he didn't somehow insulate us from the pain, it reveals that we are willing to receive what he has to cooperate with his purpose and to know that trouble is just part of his painful refinement. So let me like let you hear this last statement. Living with open hands requires that you willingly receive what God sends or allows into your life, whether you understand its purpose or not. I take you to one final, final New Testament writer, the Apostle Peter. First Peter 4, beginning with verse 12. He said, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange or unexpected were happening to you. In other words, if life throws you into the furnace of fiery trials, don't be shocked like this, this was a surprise. In fact, he's telling us those times are going to happen. And instead, he challenges us to have a different reaction and response. Verse 13, instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. In other words, if you're going through a time of troubles, a time of trials, a time of suffering, know it has a purpose. But let me let you in on another secret. God may not tell you what that purpose is. He may not bring you into the loop for you to understand. And we want him to do that. Why? Because if we can just understand a reason, then we feel like we've got it a little more under control, don't we? If we understand what he's doing, then we feel like, okay, I, I can suffer under this if I just understand what's going on. Sometimes that's a part of his purpose. Sometimes he intentionally doesn't allow us to understand because our lack of understanding is what he wants to use to cause us to trust him. Because it's harder to trust him if we don't understand so what do we do? Verse 19. So if you're suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right and trust your lives 
to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. Hmm. You know, if we had the time, all of us have stories to tell. Our lives are all stories. And, and my story, especially in the, the early part of my life, had some strange twists and turns. Some of you have heard my testimony before. My father was killed on the battlefield in Korea when I was six weeks old. My mother uh, spiraled into addiction and only lived nine more years. I, I, was, I was raised by my grandparents who were in their 60s, and I've come to understand that's too old to be raising kids. <laughs> and I remember a time in my teenage years that I look back on those and other things in my life, and I, and I, I was a Christian. I, I gave my heart to Christ as an eight-year-old boy, but I I hadn't come to much, understand much about the Christian faith. And as a teenager, I just looked back on those things and I thought, what is going on in my life? I mean, why did those things happen to me? I mean, was it just bad luck? Was it, and a kind of a, a new trendy word then was karma? You know, what, what was going on in my life that those things happened to me? And somebody in my home church pulled me aside and told me and helped me understand that God had a plan for my life and that nothing that had happened to me, even those tragedies, were by accident and that God had a purpose for them all. And that if I would just surrender to God's plan for my life, if I would just seek His will instead of my own, if I would just relinquish the control of my life to Him, then my life would have purpose and meaning and contentment. And can I confess to you, I've not done that perfectly. Maybe you have, I haven't. But here's what I found. Even when I wasn't faithful to God, He was faithful to me. He was faithful to me. He is a loving, forgiving, patient, trustworthy God. He is worthy of our trust. And the older I've gotten, the more I've come to understand He had a plan for my life all along. He knew all those things would happen. Nothing caught Him by surprise. And He planned to use them for my good and His glory before I was ever born. I can serve a God like that, can't you? God has a plan for your life. If you're not a Christ follower, the very first step in His plan is for you to give your heart to Christ. I promise you, you'll never regret it. But if you are a Christ follower, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, I challenge you. And here's the next step that I would challenge you to take. Quit trying and start trusting. Quit trying to control your own life. It's, it's, it's a futile effort. Quit trying and start trusting, trusting the God who loved you enough to send His Son to die for you so that you might be forgiven of your sin. If you will give up your life, you will find real life because you have to lose your life to find it. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand these principles of truth.